Welcome to Vital Interest. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I am the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Our podcast is designed to help you understand security in its many dimensions. Each week, we will bring you thoughtful voices from the worlds of policy, government, law, journalism, and advocacy. We will look at the challenges that confront us today and tomorrow, from pandemic to climate change, from terrorism to population migration, from war to peace, all with an eye towards the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the respect for civil liberties. Vital Interest Podcast is committed to making the world we live in more comprehensible, the part we play in it more engaged, and our futures more secure. It is our way here at CNS of connecting with our times and with one another. Donald Trump himself is a product in so many ways of the war on terror, of 9-11, of choices that were made by our political leaders, and not just Republican leaders, Democratic leaders as well, who chose to kind of buy into this sort of war of civilizations rhetoric, because either out of cowardice or just because they thought it would be politically advantageous. And I think we need to really step back and look at how we got here and not imagine that we can just kind of look forward and not backward. That was Matt Duss, foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders. Today, we talk about the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, the prospects for a new deal with Iran, and the prospects for diplomacy and peace in the Biden administration's foreign policy. Welcome to Vital Interest Podcast. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're going to focus today on where we stand, where our foreign policy is headed, But I want to start because it's January 7th that we're taping with what happened last night Mm -hmm. at the Capitol. You know, we saw people storm the Capitol with very little opposition, get inside, terrorize the members of Congress and the senators. And what's your thought? Where are we? You know, I, I don't know what to say other than just watching that go down. I mean, I don't want to call it surreal. It was much, much more than that. Um, you know, having friends and colleagues who were there. I was not there in in the Senate, in the Congress yesterday. Um, Most of us have been working from home as I was yesterday, but knowing colleagues who were there um, who had to barricade themselves inside offices and also seeing that place, you know, I'm not someone who tends to fetishize um, buildings or monuments, but, you know, as I remarked on Twitter yesterday, I've worked in in, in the Congress for four years now and I'm deeply humbled and awed every time I walk in the Capitol. And I think one of the most amazing things about our Capitol is that anyone can come in. And foreign visitors always remark on this to me when they come from meetings. It's like, I just came through this you know, x-ray machine and I came right to this office. That is amazing. I mean, in their countries and so many other countries, you need an appointment to get into the parliament if you can even get into the parliament. Whereas in the United States, the most powerful country uh, in the world, anyone can just come in. Um, It is open to the public. And I think that's very meaningful. And I think we saw that kind of disrespected and abused yesterday in a way that makes me really sad and really disgusted. One of the things you and I share is a real focus on the impact of 9-11 on the country and how it transformed the country and how we still live with that. And there were a number of uh, senators and congresspersons yesterday who referred back to 9-11, those who had been there then who said, you know, this just reminds me of how we had to shelter in place when the attacks of 9-11 were taking place. And so it was a real reminder uh, back to that. And I thought maybe we could start there 
You've written a lot about this, even recently, mm-hmm. and just sort of how you see the connection between today and 9-11. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two things. One is just looking at the amount of attention and resources we've applied toward this terrorism threat, and specifically Muslim terrorists, yeah. brown terrorists, yeah. non-white terrorists, for the last almost 20 years. I mean, upwards of $6 trillion and counting that the American taxpayers have spent on this global war on terror. And yesterday, literal Nazis walked through the front door of our capital. The piece that I wrote in Foreign Affairs also gets into 9-11 and, and the way that our society was mobilized around this war, this global war, this war of civilizations, this crusade, as George W. Bush called it. Not only has it been absolutely devastating for the Middle East region, for the people of that region, destabilizing and transformative in ways that we still haven't begun to really grapple with. The way it has led to, you know, displacement of people, refugee flows into Europe that has changed Europe, that is transforming Europe's politics, and the way it has corroded our own politics. Donald Trump himself is a product in so many ways of the war on terror of 9-11 of choices that were made by our political leaders and not just Republican leaders, Democratic leaders as well, who chose to kind of buy into this sort of war of civilizations rhetoric because either out of cowardice or just because they thought it would be politically advantageous. And I think we need to really step back and look at how we got here and not imagine that we can just kind of look forward and not backward. No, you wrote in the foreign affairs piece, to that end, the next administration should undertake a comprehensive review along the lines of the 9-11 Commission or the 2006 Iraq Study Group to explore the consequences of U.S. anti-terrorism policy since 9-11. And you mentioned surveillance, attention, torture, Mm -hmm. extrajudicial killing, the use of manned and unmanned airstrikes and partnerships with repressive regimes. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me like you're really saying more than that, Mm -hmm. which is that underlying each one of these policies, that there was something something more than that, that was awakened by 9-11. And so could a commission or a study ever really get to the bottom of that? Or would it really stay at the level of policy? Do you think there is a way to get to the the deeper philosophical, psychological, and political issues that manifest in those policies and created the future we have? Right. I mean, I I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. Maybe it will stop at the level of policy, but let's try it. I'm just saying, I think the impact of these policies over the past nearly 20 years have been so devastating to our society and to the world that we owe it to the world and we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our democracy and to the future of democracy to really take a hard look at this. I mean, these are legal commitments that we have made um, and, and we cannot seriously kind of bemoan the erosion of the rule of law or the so-called rules-based international order without looking at what we have done to erode that order. Um, As I write in the piece, I mean, the language that we have used to justify um, torture, rendition, these massive airstrikes that kill scores of civilians, this language has been taken up by regimes all over the world because we have given ourselves permission to do these things. And they use this language for that same permission. Their goals may be different from ours, and in many cases they are. But the fact of the matter is, very bad governments have used these same justifications to do very bad things. Um, And I think we really need to confront and grapple with that. 
It's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the other governments, because in response to last night's um, insurgency in the Capitol, a number of world leaders have made statements in subsequent hours, among them Boris Johnson, who sort of wishes us well, Angela Merkel, who promised a boring retreat from politics, mm -hmm. but also Erdogan yeah. and Rouhani. Yeah. But how do you see the United States position in the world being altered by Trump and by last night? Yeah. And are those two different things or do you see them on a continuum? No, I do see them on a continuum. I think, you know, as I said, Trump is a product of a status quo, but he's also been an accelerant. I think it's important to recognize both of these things. And he's not alone. I mean, this is a trend, the rise of these kind of authoritarian, ultranationalist, populist, you know, whatever term you want to use, we can look at Erdogan himself. Look at, you know, Orban in Hungary, Bolsonaro in Brazil. I think mm -hmm. Netanyahu in Israel has a lot of these same traits. But I think my experience in talking with people, you know, in my work in the Middle East and the opportunities I've had to travel there, there is still a kind of, you know, confidence and faith in that the United States has institutions that even if its leaders make bad choices, those institutions have endured. They've served to uphold a rule of law. They've, they've managed a peaceful transition of power multiple times. And I think what we've seen over the past few years of what you know Trump has done and the people who kind of aided and abetted Trump in doing this have shaken that faith. You know, when 9-11 happened and George W. Bush invaded Iraq, that was you know a disaster in its own right. And a lot of countries in the world kind of stepped back and said, wow, the United States is really doing something destructive and crazy here. But then there was kind of a, you know, in the second term, you know, the so-called adults were kind of back in charge and it seemed that the fever had broken. And I think a lot of countries, a lot of leaders, particularly in Europe, were like, okay, the United States is it's got its sanity back. Now we have Obama and it's it's gonna be fine. That was scary. But I think Trump, this is like, okay, you're not gonna fool us again. We are starting to really hedge against the United States. The confidence has been shaken in a way that's gonna take a very, very long time. It's gonna take a generation, probably more to really get back to the point where we have the kind of confidence um, in American uh, institutions and American leadership that we had previously. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani gave a speech last night and he referred to just what you're talking about, the fragility of American democracy mm -hmm. and how it's so apparent now, how vulnerable the United States is. And he's probably not the only world leader to think this, but it's interesting because of the United States fragile relationship with Iran. It's a year to this week of the killing of General Qasem Soleimani. Mm -hmm. I know you were a supporter of the JCPOA, the, mm -hmm. the Iran nuclear deal, which we withdrew. And there's been a lot of talk about how we can't go back to that because things have changed. But what, what is the future of a new uh, JCPOA or of the United States re-entering yeah. the JCPOA that exists? Yeah. And of our relationship with Iran in general, which is, becomes increasingly um, right. tense. Well, I think, you know, one of the really interesting things, and I think encouraging things about the last few years is the, the pretty strong unanimity and consensus in the Democratic Party in support of the JCPOA, um, even among some Democratic leaders who were opposed to it and were critical of it uh, the first time around under Obama. You know, when, when Trump came in and, and was critical of the deal and eventually pulled out of it, they tried really hard supporters of Trump really tried hard to bring on some democratic voices to at least say something good about what Trump is doing, and they failed. Since Trump withdrew, I think it was in May of 2018, yeah. from the, the JCPOA, you haven't seen one piece of, of anti-Iran sanctions legislation passed in the Congress. And that's a big deal, because let's, you know, let's be real here. 
Iran bashing legislation is one of the easiest political lifts in Washington, or at least it was. Um, and all of these new sanctions that they piled on have been executive sanctions, just things they passed from Treasury and, and like that. Meanwhile, in the beginning of the primary, uh, the Democratic primary, every candidate, I think with one or two exceptions, was unequivocal in their support of rejoining the JCPOA and pursuing, pursuing a broader negotiation with Iran. That was my boss, Senator Sanders' position, was to rejoin the, the Iran agreement and then seek a broader set of talks on some of these very legitimate other issues mm-hmm. that we have with Iran, that Iran should, should be sitting down and talking with other actors in the region about. And that's been President-elect Biden's position as well. And he has reiterated that position just over the past few weeks. He gave an interview with uh, Tom Friedman at the New York Times, I think two or three weeks ago, mm-hmm. right after the assassination of the Iranian nuclear scientist, Fakhrizadeh. Mm-hmm. And I think that was that was a great statement, which is say, I, this is what I said I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to rejoin the JCPOA. We're going to meet our obligations. Iran is going to meet its obligations. And then we're going to pursue a broader negotiation that brings in other actors in the region as it should. I mean, Ultimately, I think this should be the goal, is to create some kind of understanding, some kind of modus vivendi in the region, because Iran is not going anywhere. You know, Saudi Arabia is not going anywhere. Israel is not going anywhere. The UAE is not going anywhere. They need to find some way to deal with these issues, to deal with these conflicts, to de-escalate them, not to continue to escalate them, which is what Trump has done. And do you think that these new uh, Tony Blinken as Secretary of State and um, Jake Sullivan as National Security Advisor, that this is a direction they understand and will try to get a, a hold of and promote? Absolutely. I mean, I think yeah. Jake Sullivan himself gave a talk a few weeks ago where he said very much, even in more detail um, than what President-elect Biden said, and Tony Blinken as well. I mean, both of these guys were part of the team that, that negotiated the deal in the first place. Um, this is part of their legacy, and it's a good legacy. I mean, despite all the noise on Fox News um, and you know from the kind of anti-Iran hysteria industry in Washington, the JCPOA is a very strong deal. It is a good deal. It's a deal that, that actually demonstrates a very effective use of American power, which is to say, listen, we, we, there's broad agreement around this, this problem, which is Iran's nuclear program is, you know, is kind of out of compliance, it's no one's no one knows what's going on. Countries in the region, particularly Israel, have a very legitimate concern about this nuclear program and whether it's a weaponized program. Let's get a deal where we have inspections, where Iran agrees to abandon parts of this program that could be used for nuclear weapons, and in return, Iran will re- receive something. Um, that's how you do diplomacy. Mm-hmm. So rather than invade a country like Iraq and occupy it for years with hundreds of thousands of troops and spend trillions of dollars and kill hundreds of thousands of people, meanwhile, making everyone less secure, we made people more secure <laughs> without spending that much money and without killing that, that many people. So in those terms, it was an enormous success. But I think understanding the hostility toward the agreement from a number of you know kind of ideological actors is precisely that reason is that it demonstrates the folly of kind of this hawkish foreign policy vision. It's a just a living refutation of the entire, you know, theory of the global war on terror, which is that we can use the military tool in this transformative way to make ourselves safe. And that's one of the reasons why it could not be allowed to exist and why those, you know, those people will continue to fight it. So the Middle East is one area of the world that we're going to have to you know, ramp up our diplomacy, hopefully restore some things, hopefully get some new conversations going. 
But what about China? Tell us how how we yeah. should think about policy toward China going forward. Yeah, it is it is amazing just over the past year, especially just to see the way that this town has kind of kind of ganged Washington. up. Washington, you know, yeah. Washington, yes, this yeah. town, you know, has kind of shifted into kind of an anti-China mode, right? It really like you can feel it in the air. I mean, it's reminiscent in some ways of. I mean, we should step back and remember that, like they were, you know, the Hawks were gearing up for China in 2001. Um, this was going to be the next big fight, and then 9/11 happened, and they were like, "Oh, okay, we're going to hold off." Exactly. We're going to do Muslim terrorism, because basically, you know, you had the end of the Cold War, and they, they was like, "What's our reason for existing?" And then they're like, "Okay, we're going to slot out Soviet Union. We're going to slot in China." But then 9/11, like, "Okay, hold off. We're going to slot in terrorism as the kind of unifying concept." of our of our foreign policy and our and our politics etc and so now that they they see that it's kind of you know winding down china's the thing and i think it's important to learn some of these lessons from the war on terror it's like we see there's no upside i think for you know basic human dignity and existence and democracy there's no upside to buying into this kind of hawkish hysteria Let's understand the challenge that China represents in the same way that we should recognize the challenge that terrorism actually represents. It's a real challenge. It is dangerous. And let's confront it and let's be smart about how we, we confront and try to, to stamp it out. And with China, yes, China's doing a number of things that are quite atrocious, like their the, the population, what they're doing with the Uyghurs. It's an atrocity. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's staggering. We need to work with partners to create an, and mobilize an international consensus to put pressure on China to stop that. Um, we need to work with partners and allies to work against what they are doing in terms of, you know, industrial espionage. You know, we have a whole set of issues around trade. We also have areas that we need to work with China, such as climate change, first and foremost. And we can do that. You know, we can talk and work together and argue and put pressure. It's not an either or situation. So I think it's, you know, it's having a kind of realist approach when we recognize the seriousness of some of this bad behavior that is very serious. But at the same time, also saying, okay, there are there are areas here where we need to work with China, and China itself has an interest in working with us, particularly on climate change, uh, to, to try and solve some of these problems. How do you think COVID has interfered with the the way this conversation with China is going to play out? Trying to work with China is going to be hard. I mean, they have a very different vision of of how the world should operate than the United States does, and how a lot of the United States allies do. But we still have to try. Yes, I think COVID does complicate it, not only because China is obviously very, very cautious about you know any blame that they might get and any evidence that might be uncovered of their own incompetence, which has obviously been a disaster for the world. But it's also complicated in terms of it's in in that it's yet another kind of tool in the toolbox of you know the the Washington hawks and ter- you know this nonsense about you know the China virus and this. I mean, call it what you want, but it's clear what the what the goal is there is just to kind of you know. Yeah. treat China as an enemy, enemy and, and kind of amp up um, the kind of the foreign policy debate in a way that benefits the, the hawkish uh, policy approach. One more country, and then I want to ask a question about governance. Um, Israel, mm-hmm. you were the head of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I did a podcast with Peter Beinart earlier mm-hmm. um, yeah. a couple months ago. And, you know, he talks about something he wrote about over the summer and has talked about, which is a one-state solution, and not a two-state solution, that yeah. that's not going to happen. I'd love to know your thoughts on this. You know, I know Peter well. He's a good friend. I think his work on this is great. I mean, my own view is this. 
I just want to end the occupation and get to a point where Israelis and Palestinians both have lives of security and dignity. Yeah. Um, if that's in a two-state solution, that's great. That seems to me for a long time has been the most practical solution. That may be changing. That's the case that Peter lays out, I think, very effectively. Mm-hmm. You know, I certainly, as, as Peter does, as many do, I understand why Jews want a Jewish state. I mean, the history of this um, and the need for that and, and, and Jews having their own secure state people need to understand that. But the Palestinians have that same right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think right now you have an Israeli government that is actively undermining and foreclosing their ability to to achieve that right. So, I mean, that's where I stand on that question. I mean, one state, two state, I mean, I get the arguments for both, but I, I, I try to keep uh, focused on our, what are we doing for actual people right now? Let's understand the situation as it exists right now, because the fact of the matter is we have a one state reality right now. It is a deeply undemocratic and racist mm-hmm. one state reality um, of occupation in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, um, of essentially a, a, you know, a large you know, prison camp in Gaza, essentially, where people can't leave. And that's something that the United States should not and must not continue to support. One of the things I think people are worried about going forward is how much was compromised or damaged during the Trump era in terms of just the culture of governance? The mechanisms of governance. I refer to the Soleimani decision to to kill Soleimani and who was brought into it and who wasn't, what processes weren't followed. How much work do you think needs to be done on actually the structures within government, how different agencies function, how the interagency process functions, how expertise is brought in and vetted? Or do you think that will just resume as it was in the past because so many of the individuals that Biden's pulling in know how government works? Well, at first, I think, yes, clearly, you know, President-elect Biden is bringing a lot of very capable, experienced people in to, in, you know, to run government. And I'm, I think everyone should be encouraged by that. In particular, I think the choice of Tony Blinken as Secretary of State, you know, and his commitment, and it's obviously the President-elect's commitment as well, to not only rebuilding the State Department, but kind of prioritizing State Department and diplomacy as our tool yeah. of first resort. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that is very important. But I think, and this is also something, and this is where I would turn to some of the things Jake Sullivan has said and written, is I think there's a really important understanding that getting at the question of what American foreign policy is for, you know, what is it for? It's for promoting the security and the prosperity of the American people. And I think what we saw, so many of us, what 2016 showed us, you know, and some, you know, some of us have been aware of this before, but it made it very, very stark was how completely detached the elite foreign policy discussion was from the lives of so many Americans. They see people going to you know, ski resorts in Switzerland or wherever and having these conferences and talking about this or that convention or these you know, trade agreements. And yet, what are you doing for me and my kids? Um, you know, what are you doing for my community? And it's obviously more complicated than this, but this is a big part of it. And so I think the understanding that they have of it's not just coming up with better policies, but it's showing that these policies are actually making people's lives better. Here's how what we are doing relates to your life. And also listening to how Americans, you know, all over the country, how they perceive foreign policy and what they want from foreign policy and what they want from their government. It's, it's a very, it's, it's a kind of foundational question. It's beyond foreign policy. It's like, what is our basic political compact? What can Americans expect from the government that they have elected? We end the podcast always the same way, which is tell us something hopeful. And in this case, (laughs) it could be short term, it could be long term, or it could be both. 
Well, I would say one of the most hopeful things um, is that I think there is a much more energized um, kind of progressive foreign policy contingent, a progressive grassroots and, and policy advocacy movement right now, or just anti-war, whatever word we want to use, something that's less interventionist, less militaristic, something that promotes diplomacy, something that is, you know, that understands that we need to work in solidarity with people around the world. Um, you know, that even though we, we need a foreign policy that keeps America safe and prosperous, we cannot do this at the expense of others. Um, we cannot export our insecurity onto others around the world. We have an obligation. Uh, we need to begin solidarity with these people. So let's look, let's try to develop policies that promote security and prosperity for all. I think we've seen over, you know, over many years, the left, um, you know, liberals and progressives and, and the democratic left have been engaged on a lot of uh, domestic policy issues quite effectively. Um, but foreign policy has been one of those areas where, you know, the left tends to get involved kind of episodically, like let's end the Iraq war or let's support this or that. And that, that's great. But I think over the past 10 years, you've seen this understanding that this engagement and this action um, and this advocacy and this pressure needs to be steady and ongoing um, because just what we've seen um, from American foreign policy um, over the past you know 20 years, especially, but even longer than that, requires more regular engagement and pressure from um, the activist left. And I think I'm very encouraged by that. Excellent. Well, Matt Dust, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. For those of you who'd like to know a little bit more about Matt Duss and how he came to be Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor, listen in to our, the next few minutes of Matt Duss, a short biography. Hi, Matt. Hi. Uh, welcome to... Uh, Vital Interest Podcast. It's nice Thank to have you, you with us today. It's my pleasure. I want to talk a little bit about uh, your past and how you got to the path you're on now, which is as a rather prominent foreign policy advisor. But you started on this path, at least the way I read your biography, rather late. You're a writer, you're a musician. Um, what happened? What made you decide to go to graduate school, to focus on Middle East studies, and to begin to learn Arabic? Well, I think there's a few things. I mean, one is I had, you know, always been interested in kind of global affairs, but particularly Middle East history, in part because of being raised uh, in, in the church. I was raised in the evangelical church. So biblical history always held a great deal of interest for me. And then understanding, you know, what happened between then and now, you know, how, how the region changed. Um, um, there were friends that I had growing up, uh, including one in particular who was Iraqi American, um, and his father's story coming from Iraq, and and the you know the the stuff they had around their house, all of which every every item of which seemed to have an interesting story behind it, um, that kind of kept that interest going. But I will say it really kind of picked up in the summer of 2000 when I, um, along with my wife, visited Istanbul, Turkey, for the first time. And that was the first time I actually went to a, a Muslim country and experienced that. Um, and for those of you, if you've been to Istanbul and for any of your listeners who have been, it's just an absolutely incredible city. And just experiencing that and spending two weeks there, of course, you can barely scratch the surface of what Istanbul has to offer. But still, my, my interest was really, really uh, kind of peaked about Turkey, about Islam, about the history of, of that region. So that's, I think, what really pushed me to start focusing on it more. And then, you know, obviously the next year we had 9-11 when the whole country was essentially mobilized around this idea that we're under attack by Muslim extremists. And there was all this 
stuff coming at us from the media, on TV, cable news, and newspapers about what we have to do and the threat and this and what Islam is and what it is not. And even though I had not formally studied these issues in a big way yet, um, it just so much of that seemed to be wrong and, and, and concerned me as I watched, you know, our society be sort of kind of whipped up into this kind of clash of civilizations mentality. So um, I had dropped out of college after a few years and um, moved out west. I was living in Seattle, working, you know, a number of different jobs. I was a cook. I was, you know, I was a bartender. I was a bouncer at a club for a little while, um, a number of other things. But I think that's the point at which I decided to go back, finish my undergrad and go to graduate school in Middle East studies. That's really interesting. The timing was kind of inspired by 9-11. Mm-hmm. When you got into Middle East studies and began to write about it and then eventually came to advise on it, did you have a mentor? Well, there's a couple of professors at the University of Washington who I was very close to. The first was is Robert Burroughs. He's someone I first had in undergraduate I was, as I was completing my BA, and he's a Yemen specialist. He's, he's emeritus now. Um, but he, you know, obviously was well-versed in the region, but Yemen was a place that was very, very special to him. Um, and he would just go off on these you know, these long kind of remembrances and soliloquies about the beauty of Yemen and his experiences. And, and the second was a, a professor named Ellis Goldberg. Um, and he was, you know, a professor I had first for a history of modern Iraq. And this is probably 2005, fall of 2005. And he went on to be, be my, my thesis advisor. I mean, he was a labor organizer back in, in, in the 60s and 70s. He had done a lot of work and he himself came, and I only learned this much later, but he himself came back to academia as an older student, as I did. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this, in retrospect, was one of the reasons why he did, you know, he took, he gave me some special attention once, you know, he kind of realized that I, I was really serious about getting into this study and he was an absolutely fantastic advisor and mentor to have on these issues, not only because, I mean, he was just an extremely well-trained and knowledgeable person, but I mean, he came at it from, you know, a perspective of a left labor organizer. I mean, his, his main body of work was on labor organizing in Egypt. We can approach these issues. I mean, there's a tendency in our media to kind of, you know, it's, this is not new, um, this is not a new insight, but just to kind of otherize and see these things as eccentric and kind of, you know, these are people in turbans. We can't really understand what they mean. This is all very alien. And his approach was like, this is politics. They are practicing politics. And we have the tools to understand politics here. And we apply those tools to there. And it's very clear what is going on. It may have different flavors, you know, um, their, their religious references are in some ways different from ours. Um, but the basic, you know, the basic practice of politics is, is similar in a lot of ways across societies. Professor Burroughs and Professor Goldberg were two mentors in academia who meant a lot to me. And unfortunately, Dr. Goldberg passed away late last year after a battle with cancer. And I, I was really lucky uh, and very privileged to be invited back to UW, University of Washington, to speak at a ceremony just honoring him. So It's interesting. And then rather than get a PhD um, and become a professor of Middle Eastern yeah. Studies, you pivoted to Washington and to thinking about foreign policy, security writ large. Why? What was the role you were seeing for yourself? Well, I had always wanted to use it to do journalism. That was my goal originally. I'd always written. I'd always, I mean, my first major in college when I first went to college was creative writing. 
Mm-hmm. Writing is something I'd always done since I was a very, very little kid. I mean, my dad was a journalist as well. He was a reporter uh, first at the Yonkers Herald Statesman in Yonkers and then in uh, the Journal News over in Rockland. I grew up in, I was born and raised in Nyack, New York. And he moved later when I was about 10 or 11 into a relief and development humanitarian work. But journalism was something that always interested me. I knew that's what he did. And, you know, I had hit one of his old typewriters that I would just always write my stories on. And then I remember, and this is about early 2001, when Blogger started mm-hmm. um, back in the old blogging days. And a friend of mine who was um, much more, uh, let's see, uh, technically adept than I was informed me that there was this publishing website where you could just start your own blog and publish it immediately. And I was like, that sounds amazing. I'm going to do that. So I just started writing and I, you know, I didn't have very many readers, but I read a lot and I wrote a lot. And I think that's really one of those things that got me into the practice of just writing at at a great pace. Did you write on foreign policy? Did you write on the Middle East? I wrote on a whole range of things. Um, Then as now, it was a lot of politics and a lot of music. But, um, you know, I did write increasingly on the Middle East because one of the things that really started me writing a lot was 9-11 and just kind of sharing my thoughts and responding uh, to some of the things I saw out there. And there was a very lively blogosphere, you know, starting then and into the early 2010s. Um, so I was reading that a lot. And so I think that is kind of what I wanted to do that more, but professionally. So the intention was always to kind of to get some real training. So, you know, it helps to know what one is talking about. So I decided I, I really needed to do that because I noticed that so many people did not. But the goal was always to kind of come to Washington and work in some both policy and journalism with an emphasis on journalism. But as it happened, I eventually made the move slowly but surely into more of a policy realm. How did you meet Senator Sanders? Well, I first got involved with uh, Senator Sanders during the 2016 primary. I mean, I was not affiliated with his campaign. I was heading the Foundation for Middle East Peace at that point. But um, a friend of mine, um, Bill French was brought onto that campaign to kind of head up and coordinate the foreign policy work. And I had known Bill. Uh, He was actually um, with our team when I was at the Center for American Progress doing policy work there. Um, And he reached out for Middle East work and I just gave some thoughts and some material, you know, for talking points, speeches and stuff like that. And then the the campaign asked me to testify before the Democratic Platform Committee on Middle East issues, um, uh, Israel-Palestine specifically during the platform debates. So that's kind of how I got engaged with, you know, the Bernie team, Bernie world, as, mm-hmm. as it's called. But after the 2016 election, I heard through a mutual colleague, uh, Faz Shakir, actually Faz, who went on to be uh, Bernie's campaign manager mm-hmm. in 2020. And Faz was actually the one who hired me in the first place at CAP back mm-hmm. in 2008, a good friend and just a really fantastic progressive activist and analyst. You know, he had told me that Bernie really wanted to focus more on foreign policy and was looking at bringing on a foreign policy advisor. And so I, you know, started talking to his team and eventually interviewed with Bernie a few times and it, and it, there it was. Sounds like you were kind of destined to be there that it just, it's one of those, doesn't seem like a lot of turns. It just sort of the way you tell it, it just kind of flowed into, into getting that. I'm sure I mean, it didn't feel that way. <laughs> in, in, in retrospect, it may look that way. It, it, <laughs> it rarely looks that way at the time. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. 
In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief, our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interest online forum at centeronnationalsecurity.org. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.